It is so good to be back with you gals today after our um, Easter break. I pray that your Easter was blessed. And um, we, uh, if you came with us to the women's retreat, oh wow, what a great time we had this year at our women's retreat. We wish that all of you could have been with us to see, to learn, to discover how we are made one with Jesus Christ. And um, what a blessing that was. Uh, they um, are, the times of teaching will be up on the website this week. So uh, Lord willing, we'll have everything, excuse me, next week. <laughs> It is Friday. Next week, they'll be up, and um, we'll, um, you'll be able to, if you did not get to come with us this year, you will, uh, you will get to um, watch the teaching. It was fabulous. So, um, but I am um, very excited to uh, complete this book. I have really thoroughly enjoyed the book of Hebrews. How about you? Have you enjoyed it? Isn't it been a blessing? So much in the book of Hebrews that, uh, you know, I just feel that the word of God just never ends. It's just so good and you can teach it and read it again and again and again and you get something new and fresh. Well, over the break, uh, I turned 50 and um, I want to thank... Thank you. I want to thank you for your sweet birthday wishes and gifts and cards. And um, it was so uh, sweet. I feel, I feel just lavished in the love of Jesus. And um, I'm excited. But, you know, I was a little fearful to enter the 50s for some reason. I don't know why. I just was. You know, you hear your body just breaks down and, you know, all this stuff. You start getting letters from your doctor a month before you turn 50. Make sure you have all your appointments scheduled. So it is a little nerve-wracking, isn't it? So I really entered the 50s a little uh, fearful. But you know what? I am so excited to live this decade. I'm very excited because I hear, yes, praise God. I hear from all my friends that are over 50 that it was the best decade of their life. And so I took some time to ask them why. And it was very sweet, the responses that I got from my over 50 friends. And um, it was exciting because I now am looking forward to this next 10 years if the Lord tarries. Because I know that the Lord has me in a completely different season of life. You know, the kids are moved out and they're on and they're married and that sort of thing. And... um, and so you just have this, um, just this difference. I think in, in us, many of my girlfriends were saying, you're more gracious, you're more kind, you've sort of been there, done that. And, um, and now, um, you know, as you enter this next season, that you, um, you know, are just more mature all, all around as a believer and just as a person in life. So I'm so excited to be more mature. Praise God. You know, finally. (laughs) I'm just excited to be in this season. And I can see that, um, you know, it's just uh, 10 more years that I have to grow more and more in love with Jesus, to serve him with more of myself and more of my heart. And that's really what I came away um, with uh, this with 
for me, as I was sort of mulling around the 50s, I really feel that um, the Lord wants more of me, and I want more of him, and I want to make him more known. So that's my heart going into my 50s. I'm excited, and um, and I thank you again for um, joining me there um, as I continue to walk this out, and I just want more of him, and I pray that as I seek him more, that it'll just be, um, you know, contagious. And that's my desire to know him more and make him known. And I know that is yours as well. So let's pray and let's get started. Lord, we do love you and thank you for uh, your word. Lord, it is powerful. It is sharper than a two-edged sword and um, it pierces deep, Lord. And so our desires, we go to the word today that you would make it come alive to us, God, that you would allow our hearts to just camp in areas that they're supposed to you today, God, that you would allow these words to resonate with us today and that you would speak to us, Lord, uh, through your Holy Spirit. And we trust you will in Jesus name. Amen. Well, if you were not with us leading up to today, let's recap. In Hebrews 11, we saw the great examples of faith in the hall of faith. In Hebrews 12, we were encouraged in our faith to run with endurance the race that was set before us. And now in Hebrews chapter 13, we are given the evidences of our faith or how we are to live out this faith as we walk daily by faith and not by sight. Excuse me. In um, the final chapter of this fabulous book, we see that there are four such evidences that really point to our faith, four areas that really prove that we are truly walking by faith as believers. And if you're taking notes, and I hope you are, the four areas are fellowship, leadership, worship, and lordship. I'll say them again, fellowship, Lord, leadership, worship, and lordship. Those are the four areas that we're going to discuss this morning. Beginning with verse 1, let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 13. The author says in verse 1, it starts right here, let brotherly love continue. That's it. <laughs> and we could probably start and stop right there. Let brotherly love continue. In other words, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. The first evidence of our faith that we are walking by faith in our life is spiritual fellowship. And the basis of this fellowship we see right here in verse 1 is love. Love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. As Christians, these Hebrew believers that we read of in the book of Hebrews had experienced, we know, lots of hardship and pain. They were rejected by their friends and families, and they depended upon the fellowship of their brothers and sisters in Christ, in the church, which brought much needed support and encouragement in this difficult time. And many of us here today feel the same way. If I was to ask you, um, who do you consider to be your closest group of friends, what would you say? How would you answer that? Prayerfully, it would be 
that I consider the people that I call the closest to me, those that are my brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are like-minded, those who will stop and pray for me, those who hold my arms up, those who I attend church with, those that I know that I could call at a moment's notice. Those are the ones that we would say probably, for some of us, are even closer than our biological families, right? And that is how it was for these Hebrew Christians as well. Their families, many of them had disowned them because they were followers of Christ. And um, they weren't allowed in the synagogues. They weren't allowed to take part of what they used to take part of. They uh, were being ridiculed and persecuted and and even called atheists because Jesus had died and there was no proof to to those um, accusers that Jesus was alive. And so they really wrote this group of Christians off as uh, atheists. And so they were really alone. And yet they were not alone because they had their brothers and sisters in Christ with them, their family, their family. Jesus is our common bond of fellowship. I don't care what country you go to, if you find a group of Bible-believing Christians, you immediately have fellowship, right? It doesn't matter if you speak the same language. It doesn't matter what you wear, the culture you're in. Jesus is our connection. He is the one who brings fellowship between brothers and sisters in Christ. When we get together, we are to point each other to Jesus. We sharpen one another with our spiritual swords. We pray for one another. We laugh with one another. We even cry with one another. True Christian fellowship is more than friendship. It's family. And as with any family, we laugh and we hug and and we have disagreements. We even maybe are spanked from time to time. (laughs) There's misunderstandings, but we work it out because we're a family. Amen? True godly fellowship is companionship that can only come from knowing the one true and living God. It's being like-minded with others. And as one Uh, person put it this way. It's going the same direction on the same road at the same speed. I like that. The author continues by listing four evidences of Christian fellowship. Here within fellowship, there is to be hospitality. There is also to be sensitivity. There is to be purity, specifically in the marriage. We're going to look at that. And there is to be contentment. So four things within this, hospitality, sensitivity, purity, and contentment. First, hospitality. Verse 2 says, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. In other words, be hospitable to strangers because you might have an angel in your company. You just never know. This family love was first demonstrated through hospitality, through other people, for other people, for the needy. Where there is true Christian love, there is also hospitality. Now, some are given to this gift 
more naturally than other people. I would say that some have this gift of hospitality. This is not a gift that I would say is up there in my top three. (laughs) Definitely not. But we are all to be given over to hospitality. We are all to practice hospitality. It may not be our top few gifts that the Lord has given us or that we function very easily in. Nevertheless, it is an area that we are all commanded to be given to. Romans 12, 2 exhorts us to practice hospitality by sharing with those who are in need. Why? Because you never know um, if you might be entertaining an angel. We don't want to miss out on the blessing that God has for us in giving to others. Have you ever found that to be true when Um, you go to bless someone else and actually you're the one that's blessed more than that they were blessed. It is more blessed, isn't it? Like the Bible says to give than to receive. And when we're not doing that, we miss out on that blessing. It is more blessed. Jesus said it's always more blessed to give than to receive. Whether that means it's giving of our finances or a meal or preparing um, a place for somebody to stay the night, it's always more blessed to give than to receive. Because it really does reveal the heart of Jesus, doesn't it? He said that we are to be what? His hands and his feet. That we're to give a a cup of water. And if we do so, we give it in the name of Jesus. It's like giving it directly to him. We're going to talk about that in a moment. I've heard some amazing stories about angels showing up, though, in random places. When I was first saved, um, I was a little ignorant of the dangers of street witnessing. Just, you know, just was, woo, this is fun. Let's go tell everybody about Jesus. Um, But I do recall one particular evening I was out. It was just girls. We were in Um, a car. I remember it was large. It wasn't a van, maybe a minivan of some sort, but nevertheless, um, I was with a group of girls and we, um, stopped, um, in this sort of rough area to pick up an elderly lady that was on the side of the street asking for a ride. And, um, she seemed harmless enough. And so we stopped and, uh, we picked her up and right when she got in the car, she um, began to share scripture with us and she encouraged us and she prayed over us. And then she said, okay, stop. And so we stopped the car and she got out of the car and we turned around and she was gone, completely gone. Like that lady cannot move that fast, you know? So uh, immediately, not when she was in our presence, did we think anything, but right when she left, we thought, oh my goodness, that was an angel. Like, who else would come for a very short time, encourage you in the word, um, and pray over you, and then be gone? And so I felt like maybe we needed safety, prayed over us, but uh, nevertheless, um, I think about that often, and I haven't had that experience since then, maybe it was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Maybe I didn't recognize it. But I know because I've talked to several of you who have had these sorts of experiences before. And you know 
So it's not just we um, entertain angels when we open our home, but sometimes um, they come into our lives and bless us too. When we're discouraged, when we're down, when we need something, when we need help, when we need some extra prayer, when they, maybe we're in a rough uh, situation. So um, anyways, I firmly believe that the Lord uses them today, uh, and uh, if you have had that experience, um, it is uh, so sweet to know that our Lord cares that much about us that he would send um, an angel divinely orchestrated to come at the perfect time to encourage us. And so, um, anyways... Uh, the idea um, is that we are to be sensitive to the leading and the guiding of the Spirit. Now, I wouldn't recommend that you go by yourself into any dangerous place, a street witness, just to see an angel. But nevertheless, I do believe that we are to be uh, discerning <laughs> of these things. Never go alone. I will say that, too. So, um, but as the Spirit leads, that may mean stopping when the Spirit leads you to um, give somebody money or a meal, or now we have to discern about that, but um, it may mean inviting somebody over for dinner. It may be taking your neighbor a meal. It may, just the prompting of the Holy Spirit. This is how we show hospitality as believers. And you know what's great is it really sets us apart from the world, doesn't it? When we um, go above and beyond and do some random act of, um, I guess, kindness in a sense to show the love of Jesus. It really um, ministers a great volume of uh, words to non-believers especially. But all believers, whether it's our gift or not, should be given to it. So we must practice it. Next, all believers should show sensitivity. Verse 3 says, remember the prisoners as if chained to them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. True Christian love is sensitive to the needs of others. In this day and age, it wasn't unusual for Christians in this day and age, in the Hebrews that we're talking about, uh, to be arrested, to be imprisoned for their faith, to identify with these prisoners might be dangerous. But Jesus tells us to minister to them and for the Hebrews to minister to those who were in prison nonetheless whether it was dangerous or not, because this shows his great love. When we minister to the lost or the hurting or the homeless in the name of Jesus, it is like ministering to Jesus himself. Jesus said in Matthew 25, uh, 35 through 40, For I was hungry. And you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did you, we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes? And clothed you. When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? Then the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. 
when we're hospitable and sensitive to the needs of those in the body of Christ, we are sensitive. It's like we're doing it to Jesus, for Jesus himself. Remember the next time that you make a meal for someone, that you're making it for Jesus. The next time you, um, you know, do something for somebody in the body of Christ or outside of the body of Christ for that matter, you do it as unto Jesus. The author now moves from the outside of the home to the inside of the home, speaking specifically about sexual purity, uh, which is our third point here in our, um, in our first point. <laughs> the three of our, of our first points here. Verse 4 says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. The home is the very first place that love, the love of God, should be practiced. It's also the hardest place to practice it. Amen? Do I have an amen? Anyone? Okay. (laughs) Because our sandpaper people live there, right? Often, our sandpaper people, who are the people who sand us smooth, live in our home. And God has chosen them as instruments to be used to make us more like him. You know, those sandpaper people, they may be in your home. They may not be in your home. Nevertheless, the Lord uses those sorts of people to mold and shape us into his very image Now, the author doesn't address children here, but rather addresses purity and loyalty within the marriage, specifically in the intimate part of the marriage. Sexual relations within the marriage is both designed by God and something to be blessed by God. But outside the bonds of marriage, it's sinful and destructive. And uh, the author reminds us, reminds the church of that thing, both adultery and fornication will be, not might be or may be, but it's very clear, will be judged by God. Now, this is a warning to us. We all will be judged by God, and we'll talk about that at the end. But when we stand before God, we want to hear the Lord say, well done, you did good with what I had given you. So, As we stand before the Lord, either at one of the two seats, which we've discussed before, the Bema seat or the white throne judgment, and let me see if you remember the difference. Bema is for who? Good job. That was a while ago. You are sharp. The Bema seat is for believers. That's where the believers go and are judged, and we actually are rewarded for our our work here on earth. But the great white throne judgment is for who? Non-believers. And we remember that because it's like a toilet bowl, right? So that's like not good. And Bema seat is good. Bema, believers, the white throne judgment for non-believers. One of the two places we will end up, we want to end up at the Bema seat. That's where we want to be. We want to receive the crown. One, two, three, or four available to us as women Uh, crowns for doing all we could. We shared with people. We were faithful, Lord, 
to the end. That's what we want to be able to say. Romans 126 um, shares with us in Revelation 21.8 and Revelation 22.15 shares with us certain things about um, those that will not remain faithful, those that do not remain faithful and how they will be judged. And this is what he sort of says about it. He says, for those that fall into this category of adultery and fornication, he says that he gives them up to their vile passions, that he gives them over to the enemy, and that he keeps them out of heaven. So this is hard. It's hard to um, stomach this. But we do know there is a solution. The solution is repentance, right? Um, But this is for those who have not repented. At some point, we're not told when, we don't know when, if a person remains unrepentant and rebellious against God, then the Lord will give them up, he will give them over, and he will keep them out. Uh, But As I said, the better decision is to repent and to turn from sin and to be forgiven and restored. And praise God, we have an example of the man after God's own heart in the scripture that we can look to if any of us would ever fall under this category and see that David did not only commit adultery, but he committed murder. And he was caught, but he repented. And God received his repentance. Was there repercussions? Yes. And where do we see the repercussions? In his family. And that is a hard one to stomach. Because we see... And many who fall into this category don't often see those repercussions in their own children. And this is, I believe, where it's very difficult. Because the children do suffer in this situation. I believe, though, if people would stop for a moment and consider their children, maybe not their spouse, but consider their children, they would not follow through with their actions. James 1.14 is very clear about this, about temptation, and we'll get into it next time because we're starting the book of James next week. James 1.14 says, Temptation begins when we are drawn away by our own desires of lust, And when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And when sin is finished, it brings forth what? Death. It brings forth death. Death to us, spiritual death. Death to um, our marriage. Death to our family. A person who has had sexual relations outside of marriage will bring forth death of some nature. We know that for sure. Spiritual death is inevitable. As with any sin, though, Jesus 
provides forgiveness. And that's why we need him so desperately. Jesus provides forgiveness. And although he provides forgiveness, just like any other sin, there are repercussions to our sin, right? We do have to. Um, But for this particular sin, we know that this is a sin against your own body. And so the repercussions are great for you personally and for your children as well. But the best way to avoid this, these repercussions, is to avoid this devastating sin altogether. And so um, there are certain ways that we can avoid it, that we can safeguard, that we would not fall into this category for those that are married. You safeguard your marriage. You pour into your marriage. You invest in your marriage. You're in the word of God. You are first a woman of God. You're first a Christian, and then you're a wife, and then if you have children, you're a mom. And then you're whatever else you do in life. But it's in that order. We have to make sure that we are first believers, that we are first in the word daily, that we're in prayer, that we're growing more and more in love with the Lord. And as we talked about as our, at our women's retreat, that we should be more in love with Jesus, spending more time with him in, in the word, more time in prayer, more time serving him. The older we get, it's the more time. This is the word I'm getting at, 50 more. Michelle, I want more of you, but Jesus, I want you to have more of me. More of me. And that is what safeguards our life as a believer, first and foremost, and then safeguards our marriage. Investing first in our time with Jesus, and then investing in our marriage. Taking the time to um, enjoy each other's company, talking, sharpening one another by sharing the scriptures with one another. Now, if you're married to a non-believer and you cannot uh, share the scriptures with them, then you pray. Then you pray for them and you keep praying um, because your prayer is not in vain. God will answer. Now, for those of you who are single, Uh, you need to stay far. Let me just see. Is anybody here single? Okay. So you single people and those that will be watching and on the internet, you stay far from sin. You stay far from it. You stay, and I'm going to put this out, out there because it's very popular. Stay away from internet dating. So dangerous, dangerous. And this is what I think. The only reason people go to the internet is because they're discontent with what is here in church, in fellowship. You're impatient, and um, you are not waiting for God's perfect timing for you. If you want to find a man that is like-minded with you, where is the best place to find him? Church. Your church, whatever church that is, that you love and that you're being taught. So do not lower your standards and be impatient, ladies, who are single, okay? Those who will watch online. Um, Another way that we can safeguard is by safeguarding our purity, our mind, our heart, our actions. And that is 
by being mindful of what goes in our mind, what we take in through the internet, through TV, through movies, through music, through any of those sources. Um, We need to be careful as parents, what we allow into our home, what we watch, what... um, you know, what is abominable to God should be to us as well. Uh, one of my friends once said, and this really changed the way I watch TV. Uh, she said, imagine whatever you're watching on the screen as being live in your home. Because it is in your home, right? You're sitting there on your couch. Imagine that taking place right in your living room, whatever you're watching. Wow, that's right. The words that are said on a TV screen, would you let somebody sit at your dinner table and just spew those words around? No. So let's be very proactive in what we we allow in here and we allow in our home if we're parents. As we're in the word of God, We are being purified in our minds, purified in our hearts, which then purify our own actions. Uh, We are to live uh, unadulterated lives. That means that you are pure, and purity means to be free from contaminants. What is it that contaminates your life? Just think about it for a second. What contaminates your own life? We are to be free from that if we can. You know, if it's in your own home, if it's your husband who's foul or somebody or family members, that sort of thing, we do what we can. You know, we pray, that sort of thing. But I mean, what are you knowingly letting into your home? What are you knowingly letting into your mind? Let's be mindful to not be contaminated, but rather be pure. Don't let it in, don't watch it, don't listen to it, and then we will not entertain it. And if we love Jesus as we say we do, we will live lives that are free from contamination. We will hold his word high, high above, higher above anything else. And I would encourage you to ask the Lord to be your filter in your home. Everything we should pray is father-filtered. Lord, filter. Filter this. Filter that. Is it, as it goes through the sieve and the filter of the Holy Spirit, is it, and we know the scripture says, is it pure? Is it lovely? Is it edifying? Is it good for me? This is the filter that we should filter all of these things through. If we love Jesus and others... We will show hospitality. We will show sensitivity to those in need. We will um, also live in purity in our marriage and in our personal lives. And finally, we see here that we will live contently. Verse 5 says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So... We may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Everybody should have that highlighted, (laughs) underlined, squared, starred, happy-faced, whatever. That last verse right there, uh, 
The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Answer me. What can he do to you? Nothing. Nothing. We are to keep our lives free from the love of money. It is the root of all evil. We know that, right? The Bible tells us. We are to be content with what we have because God has promised us that he will not leave us, he will not forsake us, and that he will always help us. These are proven promises from the Lord. We should grab them as our own today and take them as ours. Contentment means to be satisfied. When we are content, we are satisfied with what the Lord has given us. Because if everything belongs to him, he is the giver, right? He's the one who has given us what we have. The opposite of contentment is, though, covetousness, which means greedy, desiring someone else's stuff, their things, their life, what they have. We can go on. Their hair, their eyes, their body. I mean, like, which of us hasn't been like, oh, Lord, I really wanted blue eyes or whatever, you know, like we can, we can, we can do, we can covet. And when we covet, we're saying, I'm not content with what you've given me. I'm not content, Lord, with how you've made me. Now, I will say it is important to keep our temple clean and pure and holy and healthy, right? It's the whole enchilada. We do the whole thing because we want to serve Jesus. Uh, We want to be strong believers as we serve him. We can't just let ourselves go by saying, you know, you didn't give me this or this body shape or whatever. We want to work with what we have. Amen. We work with what we got here. Uh, But money and things will never satisfy a person's heart. Only Jesus can satisfy us. And we know this because we can read of people, and we may know of people, obviously. Um, Solomon, the wealthiest man ever alive, spoke these things in Ecclesiastes. He said, whoever loves money never has enough. Ecclesiastes 5.10. You never have enough. You always want more. The more you have, the more you want. Isn't that true? It just, it's our sin nature. That's the way it is. And you may have little, but you still want more. If we're searching for things to satisfy us, we will be on an endless search because there is only one person that will ever satisfy all our needs. And that is Jesus. It's like the, the donut man. Did anybody know the donut man the, the, from way back when? You know, you have um, kids our age, you know. We grew up with the donut man. And uh, he was the one that said that we were all created, the Christian little guy. You know, you've created with a hole in your heart, right? Life without Jesus is like a donut. It's like a donut. It's like a donut. Life without Jesus is like a donut. There's a hole in the middle of your heart. Is that cute? <laughs> it's true. We are, without Jesus, we're like, you know, a donut. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) 
There's a hole in our heart, and he wants to be the donut hole filler. He fills our heart. Okay, now that's probably all you're going to remember about what I said. I always discourage people from doing, don't say something silly because that's all they're going to remember the whole time. You know, it's all about the donut. But that is good. There is a hole in your heart that can only be filled by Jesus. Anyways, when we want more and more and more, that is called greed. That is called greed and that is called sin. But it doesn't have to be money. It can be anything. It can be beauty. It's never enough. And plastic surgeons know that. That's how they make their millions. You get started and you just go down this, you know, um, never-ending cycle of more, more, more. You know, being that I just turned 50, I was like, oh man, Lord, it's, where did those wrinkles come from? Did I have those at 40? (laughs) I don't think so. And like, they just appear overnight. But you know, Jesus loves every wrinkle on your face. And, um, and he wants them to be there. J. Vernon McGee always used to say, if the barn needs to be painted, paint it. But don't remodel it. <laughs> I added that. That's me. Um, I think paint it, but it doesn't need to be like totally taken down and rebuilt, you know, reconstruction. So um, does, you know, anyways, Warren Wiersbe said, contented Christians are people with priorities and material things are not high on their priority list. I like that. The author now moves on from the evidence of fellowship to sharing about the second evidence of faith that should appear in our lives as believers as we walk by faith and not by sight, and that is leadership, and specifically submitting to spiritual leadership. Verse 7 says, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away by various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profit those who have been occupied by them. The word remember here probably refers to those leaders that had passed on. They had died, and maybe they were even martyred for their faith. The word uh, means to recall to mind. The author encourages them to remember the good leaders and then to imitate them, to follow them. We each have somebody in our lives, or we should have somebody in our lives that we would that we look to. It could be a family member, a friend, uh, somebody that's a little maybe further along in their walk with the Lord. They have wisdom. They can pour into us. They pray for us. Someone that we would look to maybe to emulate or to imitate. Real people that have skin on, you know, that we can look to. Um, A godly leader is one that practices what they preach. They're not perfect, but they seek to serve a perfect God. They are the ones that always point us to Jesus and uh, the ones that always give him the glory. But not every leader is one that we should follow. For look at verse 9 here. He warns them to be careful who they follow, saying, Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. Carried away means to be led away from the path of truth. And strange means unheard of, unfamiliar, 
foreign or surprising. I'll say that again because it might ring a bell. Strange, unheard of, unfamiliar, foreign, or surprising. When something is strange, we should be able to discern it as maybe just that strange. I'm always shocked when a new believer is more discerning about this than a more mature believer. And as I was thinking about that, how could a baby Christian discern, that's not right, more than somebody who has maybe 20 years under their belt? I believe it's because the new believer, it's so fresh and new, and they stepped out of something and into something new, and it's alive and it's fresh. And uh, I don't know, have you ever done something, and then you need someone else's opinion, some fresh eyes to come in and look and you're just in the situation, let's say, I don't know, it's, uh, it's paper, something that you've written, and you've read it and reread it and read it and read it, and you're like, I don't want to read this again. But you need someone else to come and look at it, and they can maybe see your errors. Fresh eyes. And I think that that's why sometimes this happens. We can uh, sometimes grow accustomed to, uh, you know, there being so many weird things out there that we're not quite so shocked when we come uh, across it. When something feels wrong, ladies, it normally is. When something feels strange or surprising, it normally is. When it feels foreign, it normally is. When we have a check in our spirit, it means the Holy Spirit is saying, this isn't right, or run, or go, or stop. The language implies that some of the readers were already being led astray by some of the inaccurate teachings that were surrounding them. In the context, the author is referring to some of the Jewish practices that had to do with food that they ate. They were very particular, if you know anything about the Jewish culture, about dietary laws and restrictions that they were given, but they placed their food uh, at the same level of salvation. And if you didn't eat this, you were unrighteous. Or if you did eat this, you were unrighteous. Or if you ate it at the wrong time, or not combined with the right foods. And if you go to Israel with us, you'll see this over there. Um, you know, sometimes you just, there won't be any, you know, cream. You can't have any cream. You'll be like, oh, so the coffee's black today. You know, it's because they can't combine certain things in it, it um, on certain days, um, and there's laws and restrictions. The bottom line is that under the law and the old covenant, they were um, trying to establish additional works. Rather than, and this is the Christians this is written to, rather than being established by grace. We need to beware of anyone or any reading that adds to the word of God or seeks to take away from the word of God. Paul wrote to the Colossians and warned them of this very same thing in Colossians 2, 4. He said, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit 
according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Colossians 2.23 These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. The best way to avoid being carried off by strange doctrine is to be, as verse 9 tells us, established by grace. Did I say the wrong reference? Colossians 2, 4 was the first one and Colossians 2, 23 was the second one. The best way for us not to be carried away is to, as verse 9 tells us, to be established by grace and nothing else. So many of the strange teachings that these people were hearing about added to the work of Christ, uh, meaning that it wasn't a work of grace. If we could be saved through anything that we did, any work that we did, anything that we would merit salvation, then we wouldn't, Jesus wouldn't have had to die, right? He wouldn't have had to suffer on the cross for us. But there is no other way that we can get to salvation There's no work that we can get to salvation. I recently had two Jehovah's, right before Easter, two Jehovah's Witnesses show up at our door. And I'm not one to avoid them. I'm one to run to them because I want to share with them the truth of the word of God. And I have found that it's not worth arguing with these sorts of people because they can argue Uh, nicely, by the way, very nice, Uh, but they can argue and they've got a scripture for everything. They study us just like we study them and they know how to answer. So I do what Paul the apostle did. I share my testimony with them. I said, um, I am a born again believer. I believe that Jesus died on the cross and I believe that he is God because they do not believe that he's God. That he is God, and I'm going to tell you why. Because I was lost, and now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I was on my way to hell, but I know that I am on my way to heaven. And they're like, whoa. Because they do not have security of salvation. And, um, and I share with them, you too can have security in your salvation. You can know that you're going to heaven um, for sure. And this is the way you do it. So um, I think when we, it's good not to avoid those certain situations, and we do so because we feel we don't know how to, um, uh, a a quick rebuttal. We don't know how to, to share with Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, but I say share your testimony. I have done both with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, and they don't have a testimony. So it's something that they see in me that is very different from them. Because I'm passionate about Jesus, just like they are. But I know and I have the assurance that I'm going to heaven. And they cannot say that. And so, um, be encouraged. You run after them as they go door to door. And you share your faith. You share what God has done in your life. And that is the difference. Amen? 
Salvation is a work of God's grace alone, and it's the very foundation of sure Christianity. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We are then sanctified by grace, we are sustained by grace, and we are strengthened by grace. This is how we are established. Which takes us back to verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Church leaders may come and go, ladies, but Jesus is here to stay. He is not going anywhere. He is in our past. He is in our present. And he is more definitely in our future. Our faith is to center around him and him alone. If Jesus is everything to you, you should be living a life that is revealing that. Your faith should be living and alive and active. And actually, we're going to learn about that in uh, the book of James. The title is Faith in Action. And we're going to learn how we put our faith into action and we move, move, move in this day and age in which we're living. Therefore, evidence of our faith should be seen in our fellowship and our leadership and next our worship. Verse 10 says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one who is to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name, But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. As believers, we are to worship the Lord in our strength and in our weakness, and we are to praise him at all times. These believers were experiencing, as I said, the persecution, the isolation. They were finding it very difficult to praise the Lord during this time. And that's why the author writes specifically regarding this. Um, and he adds a, um, a certain word on to, uh, the end there. And, and the word is, um, sacrifice. You know, when we're finding it difficult to praise the Lord, that is when it is a true sacrifice of praise. A sacrifice is an offering of great value, but praise is a joyful sound that comes from a grateful heart. The term sacrifice and praise might seem opposite to us, but to the Lord, they go hand in hand. The writer lists three specific areas of sacrifice. Uh, Praise, and he said that they are to do this continually. Prayer, which they were to do with thanksgiving. And then they were to share, in which they were to do good. Praise, prayer, and share. And they were to do this um, as a sacrifice. When we are in difficult times, or maybe our prayers go unanswered, or 
they are not answered as we would have hoped or liked them to be, we find it difficult to praise the Lord or even sometimes pray to the Lord. Have you ever felt like that? Like, I just can't even pray. I can't even pray. I have. This is why it is referred to as a sacrifice. We are to lay ourselves, our needs, our wants, our desires, our hopes on the altar and praise the Lord and thank him nonetheless. Notice that the writer encourages them to do in verse 15 to do this continually, meaning always and without ceasing, not just when we get our way, not just when things work out, not just when, um, you know, things are going according to our plan, but in the good times, in the bad times, in the good health, in the bad health, we will praise the Lord. I have found it helpful when I'm going through something difficult to step outside of me and do something for someone else. This is really, uh, it helps because then you're not thinking about you. And for just a moment, you get your eyes off you and maybe your circumstances and what's going on in your, your life. And you do something for someone else. And guess what? You are so blessed because it goes back to our original <laughs> verse 1. That that is how we love the brethren. We love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you are able to do that, to step outside of your situation and your difficulty and bless someone else um, or minister to someone else in some way, you, I promise you, will be even more blessed than they are. Because it is truly a sacrifice of praise. Fellowship, leadership, worship, and here our fourth and final is lordship. Specifically, spiritual lordship or spiritual obedience. This is the evidence of our faith. Verse 17 says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable. For you. When a servant of God is in the will of God, teaching the word of God, the people of God should submit and obey. This doesn't mean that all pastors are to be dictators, but that they are to be shepherds who tend the sheep and care for the sheep and watch over the sheep. You remember that Jesus, when he came to restore Peter in John 21, 15 through 17, I have it on um, the board. I'll let you look at it. I think it's up there. Um, And he asked Peter the same question three times. The question was, do you love me? Why do you think he asked them this question three times? Because Peter denied Jesus how many times? Three. Verse 15 says, so when they had eaten breakfast, this is of um, John 21, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And his answer to him was then, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. 
He said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved at this point because he had said to him three times, you love me. And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Here we see the commission of Peter as the leader of the early church and the three instructions, just three, that were given to him as the leader of the early church. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, and feed my sheep. Notice who they are. His, not ours. Secondly, notice the command to feed and to tend. When you feed someone, you're giving them food. When you tend someone, you are watching over them, and you are caring for them. And finally, notice what they are. They are lambs, and they are sheep. They are young, and they are old. They are babies, and they are adults. He is to feed both lamb and sheep. He is to tend to the big ones, the adults. We're not told that he is to tend to the babies. I guess that's the mama's job, right? She attends to her own babies. Apparently, the adult sheep were to watch over their own children. Uh, It is vitally important that a pastor do all three of these things. For if he only feeds the sheep, they will be unloved and neglected. They might even be in danger if they're not protected because that's part of tending. But if he only protects them, intends to them, and loves them, but doesn't feed them, they will starve. So it's important that he does both. Being a pastor teacher is an extremely important job. In fact, there is no greater job with such great responsibility in all the world. Any job, even being president of the United States, carries no greater responsibility. We don't see that it says of the president of the United States or any other states in James, or country, excuse me, of uh, James 1.3, let not many become presidents for they shall receive a stricter judgment. It says, let not many become teachers for they shall receive a stricter judgment. The exhortation is for us to obey our pastor, who is the one that God has placed over us in the church, the one who faithfully feeds us, intends to us. He protects us from harm. He keeps us close to his fold, and, um, and he will correct us if need be. And we know of sheep that, um, you know, when a sheep wanders off, what would the shepherd have to do? He'd have to break their legs, and he'd pick them up, and he'd carry them over their neck, over his neck, until they um, they healed. A pastor is faithful to feed us a well balanced meal every time we are here. We'll come to church, and he seeks to protect us from harm. Um, He knows the word, studies the word. He's anointed by God. Um, He's gifted and talented, of course. Um, I I mean, we're super blessed here, right? Because um, we have a great shepherd. Uh, I would say that if he um, wasn't my husband. But we are super blessed to have all these things in our pastor. uh, And what a blessing it is. I love that the writer in the end asked for prayer. I love that. 
because it shows his humanity. It really is just like he's not above it. He needs prayer too. And how important this is for a pastor teacher. Look at the specific request here. Believing, I believe, that it is Paul the Apostle who wrote this letter. I see such humility and honesty in this simple but profound prayer request. It's just, it's just one thought. To live honorably. I love that. To live honorably. There is so much in that one tiny little statement. Please, you know, if you ask, what can I pray for you, Michelle? Oh, to live honorably. There is so much in that. Like, how do you do that? There's so much in living honorably. He says, verse 18, pray for us. Pray for um, that we are confident that we have good conscience in all things. Here it is. To live honorably honorably, but I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you sooner. To live honorably means to live morally, ethically, honestly, and righteously. Wow, that was a big word. Honorably, morally, ethically, honestly, righteously. I love that the author asked for prayer for this, knowing that this is key for a pastor, key for a leader, because anyone can call themselves a pastor, but not all can live like one. According to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, a pastor has a higher standard than anyone else. He is to live a life that is above reproach in all things. He is not to stumble others. He is to be self-controlled and sober-minded. His um, home is to be in order. He is to be upright, holy, disciplined, not greedy, not violent, not quick-tempered, not arrogant, and not a drinker. The word pastor comes from the Greek word poem, meaning shepherd. And the writer continues by pointing us to the greatest shepherd of all. As he closes this letter, in this benediction, he seems to gather together all the major themes of Hebrew and to restate them in these closing verses. See if you can find them. I believe there's five. Verse 20 says, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Did you find them? Their peace resurrection, perfection or completion, blood, and covenant. These are five of the major themes in, woven in the book of Hebrews. Peace, resurrection, perfection, blood, and covenant. Right there in these closing verses. As the good shepherd, Jesus died for the sheep. As the great shepherd, he lives in heaven today. And as the chief shepherd, he will come back and get us as he promised. And until then, Jesus continues to perfect us. As verse 21 tells us, making us complete in him. This word perfect is the word katarizo, meaning to set a broken bone or mend a broken net. It also means to outfit a ship for voyage and to prepare an army for battle. Jesus is in heaven 
And he wants to equip us for life on earth. He wants to set our broken bones. He wants to mend our torn nets. He wants to get us ready to sail. And he wants to prepare us for battle. He wants to mature us so that we can work um, for him, that he can work in us, that he can work through us, and he can do that which pleases him. So how does this take place? How does he accomplish this in us? He uses the word of God. He uses prayer. He uses fellowship with the body of Christ. And he also, as we learn at our women's retreat, he also uses suffering and pain to perfect us and to make us more like him or one with him. Let's commit, ladies, to making Hebrews 13, 20 through 21 our personal prayer. In fact, let's end by reciting it together. So open your Bibles if you have it. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. If you have, we read the New King James here. Sometimes I'll throw in the uh, New American Standard. But, um, and then let's replace the word you, there's only two times, with me. So it makes it personal. So when you see the word you, say me. Okay, let's start. Uh, Verse 20 says, Now may the God of peace, who brought us our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make me complete in every good work to do his will, working in me what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That concludes the book of Hebrews. Give yourselves a hand. And if we have learned anything, it's not about Jesus and the donut, right? It is that Jesus is better. You got it. Jesus is better. Next week, we start the book of James. Get ready. Hold on to your seats because, woo, he starts strong. And we are going to go after that tongue. And we're going to go and we are going to control it. And we are going to... (laughs) We are going to allow our faith to be in action. So let's pray, and, um, and then we'll, um, we'll move on, because I think we don't have time to close in a song tonight or today. Lord, we do love you and praise you, and thank you, God, that um, you are good. You are so good to us. And, um, and I thank you for this book of Hebrews that has reminded us of um, your coming again, the fact that you are, that you are good and that, um, and that you are worth the wait, God. That we would continue to look to you, God. That we would continue to long for you, Lord. And that we would um, continue to hold on to hope, God, because you are coming soon, Lord. May our eyes be fixed on you. In Jesus' name, amen.